Second Chronicles chapter 15, we began looking at this chapter of Scripture this morning. And the title of the message is The Courage of Revival. And we looked this morning at the first seven verses, really, uh, at the condition of Israel when King Asa came to the throne. And to put it simply, they were in need of revival. They were described in verse number 3 as without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law, and in trouble, verse number 4. That was the diagnosis, if you will. But tonight we want to focus on the cure. And that cure revolved around the influence and the leadership of one man by the name of Asa. He was the king of Judah. Notice with me verse number 8. In fact, we'll read verses 8 through 15 together. And when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Obed the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath. For they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire. And he was found of them. And the Lord gave them rest round about. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts tonight to teach us what we need to know and to change us however we need to be changed for your honor and glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Asa came to the throne at a very difficult time in Judah's history. But God used him in a tremendous way to turn that nation, and not only the nation of Judah, but also many people from the northern kingdom of Israel, back to the Lord. What they experienced here was a genuine revival. And one of the key phrases comes in verse number 8 when it says that Asa took courage. He took courage courage. He had been encouraged, if you will, specifically by the prophecy and by the word of God. When this prophet came and shared with him this message in verse number two and said, uh, the Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. Asa took courage in that. His bravery was not a a, a foolishness that ignored the dangers as it were, but rather in spite of the dangers and in spite of the potential fears, he did what was right anyway. 
Joshua 1, verses 8 and 9 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Biblical courage is inseparably connected to the Word of God. Just because you are uh, going out and, and uh, in the face of danger and in the face of uh, potential threats and things like that and, and, and you're acting boldly doesn't necessarily mean that you have biblical courage because what you are doing may still be a very foolish thing to do. Asa here, though, was encouraged by the Word of God and he was acting in accordance with God's Word. One of the common threads of every revival, by the way, is that revival must start with the Bible or it is not real revival. Let me say that again. Revival must start with the Bible or it is not real revival. People who have an emotional experience at a church service, but they walk away and you ask them, what did God show you from His Word? And they say, I don't know, but it was a great meeting. That's not real revival. Real revival starts with the Word of God. You look at, for example, in Nehemiah chapter 8, that's a great, another great revival passage to study. It started when God's people returned to the Word of God. And Asa here, having received God's Word from the prophet, he took courage and he began to lead the nation of Judah through a series of very important steps to bring them back to a place of obedience to God. And they experienced revival. Notice the steps that he took that resulted in a national revival. First of all, he removed abominations. He removed abominations. Look at verse number 8. It says that he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim. So here was his very first step, his very first action that he took that led eventually to a a widespread revival. He removed the abominable idols. Now, they had started worshiping Baal, Ashtaroth, and other of the false gods of the the heathens around them. And, And you must understand that the worship of those gods was very immoral. It was It involved practices that that we will not even discuss, okay? It was vile. And a lot of times then with that, the imagery, the statues that were involved were equally immoral. And so this was a very significant step that they were taking for him to go out and physically remove all of these abominable idols out of the land was very important. But why was it so important that he do this? What was the big deal about these idols and these statues and these places of worship? Why couldn't they just close the doors and just walk away and leave them alone? Well, first of all, they were very symbolic because those idols existed in the land. They were there as a result of Israel's sinful choices. And by physically removing them, Asa was making a statement. What he was saying is, we are no longer going to worship idols. We are going to worship the true God. 
So it was very symbolic. But secondly, it was also a source of temptation. As long as those idols were still put up, as long as those groves where they worshipped them were still existing, as long as whatever temples that they may have erected to these false gods were there, the people were going to be constantly tempted to go back to that sin, to go back and worship those false gods. And Asa knew this. That as long as those idols were there, people were going to be continually tempted to go back to them. For many people, I'm sure that it had just become a part of their life, a, a habit, if you will. As Maybe there was a little shrine to Baal as they would walk to work every day. They would stop and they would pray to Baal there. Or maybe they were used to going on Friday nights over to the grove to take part in Baal worship. He knew that for the people, for those things to exist, it would be a continual source of temptation. And so he removed those abominations. When it comes to revival, you cannot experience revival without separating from sin and sinful influences. You must turn to God from your sin. And for the uh, Judah here, they had to turn from their idols and back to God. Hosea 14.1 says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Now, we read this history as, and, and we, we think, okay, well, I'm glad that he did that, but really, was that such a big deal? I mean, think about what he's doing here. Uh, I mean, he's going and he's, he's attacking, essentially, some people's way of life. There were prophets and priests of these false gods, and, and there were whole centers of worship around them. There was, in some places, I'm sure, an economy of worship, the buying and the selling of sacrifices for them. I mean, this was a big deal. And there were going to be some people who were not going to be very happy about what he was doing. We see an example of this in the Old Testament, the story of Gideon. One of the first things Gideon does, which if we ever get back to Judges, we'll talk about it. But One of the first things Gideon does is he goes and he destroys the uh, idols of Baal in the groves. And he made a lot of people really mad. In fact, they came out and they, they told uh, Gideon's dad, hey, give us, uh, give us Gideon so we can, we can kill him for doing this. And I like what his dad said. His, Gideon's dad said, why don't you let Baal defend himself? Why you got to come and fight for Baal? I'm getting in Judges. Let's get back to Second Chronicles. But to the point here that to, to actually take this action and remove the idols was a big deal. We see an example of it in the New Testament um, several times actually. One that comes to my mind is when Paul and, and Silas went into Philippi. And remember the demon-possessed girl was, uh, was healed and that demon was cast out. And in so doing, uh, she had some kind of an ability prior to that to be able to foretell the future in some way. And her owners, because she was a slave, had made a lot of money on it. But now she couldn't do that. And so they were mad. They had messed up their economy that was based on this false religion and, and this demonic uh, influence. And, and so what did they do to Paul and Silas? Threw them in jail. And for Asa to step out and, and to do this took a lot of courage. You think, okay, I, I'm there with you, Pastor. I see what you're saying, but what does that have to do with me? Last time I checked, I don't have any Baal idols in my house. So what do we do? We need to understand that though we may not have little statues to false gods in our house, may not see that even often here in our culture in America, there are still many things that are abominations to God that sometimes 
we allow in our lives and we become very attached to them even. We get used to them. We get comfortable with them. What am I talking about? Well, maybe it's a sinful habit. A sinful habit in your life that needs to be broken, but that's something you've become quite used to. Maybe it's a friendship with a person who's influencing you to sin. Maybe it's a favorite show or movies or music that you like or a news source that is a source of unholy suggestions and information. You know, all of these things we get, we're, we get kind of attached to. But if they're unholy and if they're abominations to God and we've allowed them to get a, a foothold in our life as it were, sometimes it can be kind of hard to remove those abominations, to cut it out of our lives, if you will. Amputation is never easy, though sometimes it is necessary for the health of the body. You know, back in the Civil War, it was just before they, the, really the medical revolution that took place in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, so a lot of the men who were injured in the Civil War, you know what the remedy for their wound was? Cut it off. You got shot in the arm? Cut it off. Your leg got damaged pretty badly, injured pretty badly? Cut it off. Why? Well, it was either lose the leg or lose the life. That's what it boiled down to. And so, yes, that was a radical step to take, but when the health of the body was at stake, it was an important one, a necessary one. You know, Jesus shared a similar principle. In Matthew chapter 18, He said, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. What, what, was Jesus really advocating there for self-mutilation? Was that what Jesus was advocating for? Like, if you want to be very spiritual, you need to go cut your limbs off. No, it's not what he was advocating for. And truthfully, that extreme extent would almost never be necessary. What was Jesus' point? His point was this, that even if you had to go to the extreme to cut off a hand, to cut off a foot, or to pluck out an eye in order to do what is right, in order to live a holy life, it would be better for you to go to that extreme than it would to allow yourself to continue in sin. You know, when it comes to revival, sometimes revival is hindered in our lives personally or in our church, certainly in our community, because people are unwilling to take the radical steps necessary to separate from sin. I don't want to give that up. I enjoy that. I, I, I don't want to stop going there. I like going there and doing what I do there. I don't want to stop allowing these people to influence me. I like them. I like how they sound. I, I like how I feel when I identify with them. And people are unwilling to take the necessary steps to separate from the sin and the sinful influences that to, to remove the abominations. And all potential for revival is stopped right there. 
You will never have revival. And I will never have revival if we're not willing to remove the abominations from our lives. You know, our attitude ought to be, Lord, whatever it is, if there is anything in my life that doesn't please you, show me and I'll get rid of it. That should be our attitude. He removed the abominations. But then notice the next thing that he did in verse number 8. It says that he renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. So the next thing that Asa bravely did here was to renew the altar. The altar here that it's talking about is the brazen altar in the temple courtyard. It was the place where the sacrifices were offered to God for the sins of the people. It was the place where people met with God. Well, if it had to be renewed, that implies pretty clearly that it had fallen into disrepair and disuse. It had gone a long time without being used regularly. And so they had to clean the dust off of it. Maybe they had to pull the vines away from it. Maybe they had to uncover it. Maybe they had to clean it up. Maybe they had to polish it. Maybe some pieces had gotten broken on it and they had to repair it. But the altar needed to be renewed, but not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense that it needed to be used again. There would be no point in, in uh, having a nice new shiny looking uh, brazen altar there if you weren't using it like God intended. And that's exactly what they did. Later when everybody came, the Bible says that they sacrificed a great number of animals to the Lord. 700 oxen and and, uh, 7,000 sheep, I believe the number was there, that they brought to the Lord and they sacrificed to Him using that altar anew. They renewed the altar. I call this the courage of consecration. Because it was not enough to just say, okay, we are not going to worship idols. Now what he's saying is what we are going to do is we are going to worship God properly. I know that a lot of times, if we're honest, it's easy maybe to just get rid of some things. But if we don't replace those things with the right stuff, then inevitably we'll just end up doing those things again. And it's not just enough to say, well, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, if we're not also doing the things that God wants us to do. And that's what He does here. For a long time, the people had offered sacrifices to false gods in many different places, and now they are offering sacrifices to the one true God in the one place that He ordained that it be done. That was part of the Old Testament law. This was the place in Jerusalem, at the temple, in the courtyard, on this altar. That's where you to offer your sacrifices. And by doing that, it was an act of faith. It was an act of obedience. Asa was making a statement with this act that God and God alone was to be worshipped. And He was to be worshipped the way that He said He was supposed to be worshipped. Do you understand that we don't get to pick how we worship God? We have to worship Him in spirit, Jesus said, and in truth. Who's truth? Well, there's only one truth. That's God's. We have to worship God as He says. A lot of people today think that they can worship God however they feel. People say, well, I can worship God just as well out on a boat in the middle of a 
a lake on Sunday morning as I can in church. Now, I do believe that we ought to have the spirit of worship all the time wherever we go. But I also believe that in the New Testament, God has said that we are to gather regularly for the purpose of encouraging and edifying one another and being instructing in the Word of God. And I do believe there is an element of corporate worship there involved. That we come together and we praise God together. We don't get to pick how we worship God. We are to bring our sacrifices to the Lord, as it were, as God has ordained. This took the courage of consecration. It took the courage of commitment as well. You know why? Because sacrifices in the Old Testament were not a one-time thing. He was restarting something that would have to be kept up continually. And what he's saying here is we're going to start this and we're going to keep on doing it because that's what God has said. We're making a commitment here, not just to do this one time in this one event, but to continually worship God as He has instructed us. He was declaring His intent to keep right with God. It wasn't going to be a one-time thing. When it comes to revival, true revival is not a one-time commitment. It's not just a single instance where somebody comes to the front of a church building and gets emotional That's not what revival is. Revival is a commitment when you return to a place of true obedience and full commitment to God, a place of full surrender to God. And in the same way that the animals would be sacrificed to God upon their altar and they would be killed, their life would be totally devoted and given to the Lord there. We have been called to sacrifice ourselves to God. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, most of the sacrifices got killed. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? It's not going to want to stay on the altar. You take a little lamb and you put it up on that altar. If you don't kill it, what's that lamb going to do? It's going to get down. It's going to try to get down. When we talk about bringing our bodies as a living sacrifice, we're not talking about, of course, not literally dying, but what we're talking about is dying to ourselves so that daily we are fully surrendered to the Lord. A living sacrifice to Him. We don't have a physical altar anymore. God has has done away with that when Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law. But instead, we meet with God and we fellowship with God on our own, personally. And I want to make an application of this here as He renewed the altar, specifically in this area of our lives. Because the Israelites in the Old Testament met with God at that altar. But you and I meet with God daily in prayer and Bible reading. He speaks to us through His Word and we speak to Him in prayer. And that is our altar. Our personal, our private altar. The altar of personal devotions. The next step on the road to revival for them was to renew that altar that had been so long disused. They removed abominations. They renewed the altar. But then number three, they restarted assembling. 
Verse number 9 says, And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon. For they felt him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. The idols are gone. The altar is renewed. So Asa called for the people to gather once again for the sacrifices and for the worship and for the instruction in the word of God. And people all over heard what he had done and they heard specifically that the Lord was with him. And they began to come from all over the place. From Judah and Benjamin, yes, but even from the northern kingdom, from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon. All of these tribes and these people came to Jerusalem specifically to worship God as God said. God used Asa's influence to affect many people. And notice, notice the way that the people demonstrated their desire to be right with God. It was to assemble for sacrifice and for worship and for instruction in the Word of God. One of the marks of genuine revival is when a person experiences that they want to be around God's people, worshiping God and hearing the Word of God. Nehemiah 8 and verse 1, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. That is a mark of, a mark of true revival, is a desire to be with God's people and a desire to hear the word of God. A large crowd gathering together is not necessarily revival. Revival can happen to just one person. But if revival does happen to that one person, they will desire to be around other people who love God and want to obey Him too. Someone who says, I love God, but I don't like Christians. Something's wrong there. Something's wrong. Somebody says, I love God, I love Jesus, but I don't go to church. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Because if you love God, you will love the people of God and you will love the Word of God and you will love the worship of God and you will want to gather, you will want to assemble. i tell you, one of the things that COVID showed is who was coming to church out of convenience and who was coming out of conviction. There are churches all across our country that shut down because of COVID. Not because... They had so many people affected or so many people died or anything like that. But people for a period of time didn't come to church. And when the opportunity came for them to come back, they said, you know what? I don't really need that anymore. I can stay at home and sit on my couch and I can watch some some Bible sermons and Bible lessons and it's good enough for me. And you know, for a time we did that here. We had stuff available online to this day. We upload our sermons so that they can be watched or listened to and hopefully they're a blessing to people. But watching a sermon online or listening to a podcast of a, a, of a sermon is not the same as going to church. It's not. All right? If you're not assembling, you're not churching. The word for church literally means a called out assembly. Well, I'm assembling virtually. Well, you're virtually not assembling is what you're doing. No, it's not the same. They assembled together. You look in the pattern of the New Testament. When the church began, what did the believers do on a regular basis? They assembled. 
They were at Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. That's what they did. They, they were assembling all the time. In the New Testament, the rather regular gathering of the church is not an if proposition, it's when. It's just assumed that the church is going to be gathering. Listen to this verse, for instance, 1 Corinthians 5, 4. Paul said, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. When ye are gathered together. Not if. He didn't say, hey, if y'all ever have church again, think about doing this. No, he said, the next time, when you do it. Regular gathering is something that we've been commanded not to forsake, Hebrews 10.25. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. And when it comes to the, the regular assembling of God's people, it is both a cause and a symptom of the need for revival. It's, it's a vicious cycle here. Because when you skip out on the assembling of God's people, you're hurting yourself spiritually. You're not getting the encouragement from your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not getting the edification from the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. And so it affects you spiritually. And because you become spiritually weaker, your desire to be with the assembly is less. And so you skip more and you become weaker. So you desire it less and so you skip more. There's a cycle here. It's both a cause and a symptom of a need for revival. Judah and Israel had not gathered for a very long time to worship God as God had prescribed. But now, notice they're gathering again. They hadn't gathered and so they hadn't been taught and they didn't know what to do. And the cycle kept getting worse and worse. But now, praise the Lord, they're breaking that cycle. They're bringing uh, uh, themselves back to where they should be. And so this next step in bringing about revival was to restart the assembly. He removed the abominations. He renewed the altar. He restarted the assembly. And then next, we see that there was a restored allegiance. A restored allegiance. Look at verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. That whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. There was a renewed allegiance here. The people publicly committed to seek the Lord wholeheartedly and to separate from those who would not. Now, we have to acknowledge that this was a different time Different dispensation is the word we use to describe the differences in how people worshiped God in the past versus now and other times. So when it talks about them making a commitment to put people to death, that doesn't apply to us today, okay? This was a different era. But what does apply to us in principle of their example that we should follow is their willingness to make a public commitment to follow God wholeheartedly. To say, we are going to seek the Lord. And you know what? If other people won't, 
We're going to separate from them. Now, they did it in the most drastic method possible. (laughs) But our attitude ought to be, whatever steps I need to take so that they don't influence me to sin, I will take those steps because I am committed to God and God alone. It's a renewed allegiance here. God became their number one focus again. Notice the language here in verse number 12. With all their heart and with all their soul. There was to be no divided allegiance here. God was going to be their number one focus. He was to be their single focus. A life of divided allegiances indicates a need for revival. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, You cannot, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or material things. You can't do it. But so many Christians today, they want to enjoy the worldly things. They want to live in the world and they want in many ways to be of the world and at the same time they they pretend like they want to do what is right and they want to please God. They, 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 They want to live holy. You can't do both. What did the Lord say to the church of Laodicea? He said, I would that thou were hot nor cold. But because you are neither hot nor cold but are lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. We've got a lot of Christians today who are lukewarm Christians because they're trying to be in the world and of the world and they're also trying to be in the church and of the church and of the things of God and you can't do that. Really, if that's the case in your life, you're not serving God at all. Really, you have become your own God. You have said that I I think that I will have the most fun in life doing it this way, and so I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. You're calling the shots. So therefore, you are your own God. Fellowship with God is an exclusive proposition. In other words, either you're fellowshipping with God and not the world, or you're fellowshipping with the world and not God. What does James 4, 4 say? Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 1 John 2, 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what the people said in Asa's day is, we're going to seek the Lord alone, Him only with all of our heart, with all of our soul. And we're going to separate from those who don't. You know, it is still true for God's people today that we must separate from those who do not seek the Lord, those who would influence us into sin. It doesn't mean that we cut off all contact from them. It doesn't mean that we go and we move into caves in the mountains and we never speak to any unsaved person. No, we've been commanded to be salt and light. And that that means that we have to be in the world. But what it does mean is that we cannot let the world be in us. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. This next step in revival was 
this renewed allegiance with God, this commitment that, they're, that they've made, we're going to seek the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul. And then finally, the result of this is what I, I call the reunion with the Almighty. Look at verse 15. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought Him with their whole desire. And He was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. You see, their restored allegiance brought joy. And because there's a joy that you can only have when you are right with God. And so they rejoiced, it says, at the oath. And it says that they sought Him, they sought the Lord with their whole desire, and He was found of them. Now, we have to remember, what is it, how did it describe them before? In verse number 3, they were without the true God. But now they've sought Him and they've found Him. What, what, is this, what does this mean? Was God hidden? Was God playing some kind of a cruel hide-and-seek kind of a game with Him? No. All it, all it means is that when they finally turned back to God, there He was. They had been turned away from Him and everywhere they looked, God wasn't there because they were looking in the wrong direction. But when they returned to the Lord, when they repented and they turned back to Him, He was found. He was there all along, you see. When you're out of fellowship with God, by the way, you don't have this kind of joy that they had because there's a void in your life that only God can fill. But when you seek Him, He will be found of you, and that joy will return. Turn with me to Psalm 32 for a moment, if you would. Psalm 32. Why are we miserable when we sin? That's actually a very deep question to try and, try and really understand. We're miserable when we sin because the Creator God created this world and created us to work best in a certain way, by behaving in a certain way, by doing certain things, by believing certain things. That's how God designed it. And when we do things differently than that, when we sin against God, we're going against His design, and therefore we will never be truly happy. Because God has designed life so that we're only happy when we're doing things His way. Because His way is the best way. And when we sin against God, and when we're living in sin, when there's unconfessed sin in our life that we just habitually are going back to over and over again, we are inviting misery. You don't have to take my word for this. Listen to how David described his life during that time of unconfessed sin, between when he sinned with Bathsheba and then murdered Uriah, from then until he finally confessed it and got it right with God. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. 
He's describing how that time felt. He said, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. He's describing the misery of sin right there. That's how he felt when he was out of fellowship with God. He was miserable. But now turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a companion psalm to Psalm 32. Both are psalms of confession written by David after he got right with God. And notice what he says here in Psalm 51 in verse number 12. He says there, listen to this. In his prayer to God, he's confessed his sin. He's pouring his heart out to the Lord. Notice what he says, verse 12. Restore restore unto me the, what? What's that next word? Joy of thy salvation. God, give me back my joy. Give me back the joy that you've given me in my salvation. That makes it pretty clear that he didn't have it. He had lost that joy. He no longer was enjoying his relationship with God. Why? Because there had been sin in his life. God intends for the chastening that we experience to be grievous, that is to be uncomfortable, to be painful, to make us feel our sin. But not just as a pointless punishment, but no, so that afterwards it would yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness, so that we would yield in repentance and we would confess our sin and we would get right with God. And when we do that, the joy returns. There have been times in my life where there was a sin in my life and for too long I left it unconfessed, I didn't deal with it and it just went on and for weeks and weeks and weeks and I was miserable, I knew I wasn't right with God. I knew there were things in my life that I needed to confess and I needed to surrender to the Lord and I I wasn't doing it, I knew better and I was just being stubborn, I was in sin and I was miserable. And then finally... I yielded to the Holy Spirit's working in my life. I confessed it to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I'm I'm done. I'm done trying to hide it. I'm done trying to ignore it. I'm done trying to explain it. I'm done trying to run away from it. Lord, I confess it. It's sin. And you know what happens when you do that? The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you confess your sin to God, God takes His eternal eraser and just wipes it off. Because now you're beginning back in the place where you're in a right fellowship with God and there is then a joy that comes into your life. Because the burden's been lifted. You're no longer walking around with that weighing on you. They had a reunion with the Almighty and it resulted in great joy and great blessing. They sought Him and He was found. They turned back to God and lo and behold, He was still right there. And notice that with this came the return of God's blessing. It says in verse 15 that He was found of them and the Lord gave them rest round about. This ushered in a period of 20 years of peace 
20 years that they had no fights, no wars with their neighbors, 20 years that they just got to enjoy life. That's what God wanted for them all along. But it wasn't until they returned to the Lord that God's blessing returned to their life. They enjoyed political peace all the time that they were in right fellowship with God. The same principle applies to us today that when we are right with God, He gives us peace. It's a peace that's not dependent on circumstances, but a peace that goes beyond even human understanding. Because when you're at peace with God, you have the peace of God. The two go hand in hand. And how did they get back to this place? And how did they enjoy this era of peace and prosperity as a nation? It's because one man named Asa took courage. He took courage. Israel was without the true God. They were without a teaching priest. They were without the testimonies of the Lord. And they were in a whole lot of trouble. But Asa took courage and he removed the abominations, renewed the altar. They restarted assembling. They restored their allegiance to God and they experienced a wonderful reunion with the Almighty. In short, they had revival. All because Asa took courage. I believe the application for this, first of all, should be for us individually. That we each need to ask the question, do I need revival? Have I been walking with God? Have I been living like God wants me to live? Have I been separating from sin and sinful influences? And if the answer is no, I haven't been doing those things, then I need revival. I need to remove the abominations. I need to renew the altar. I need to take these necessary steps to restore my commitment, my allegiance to God. And when I personally take these steps, and when I personally have the courage necessary to get right with God, I personally will experience revival. But then I think we need to consider not only ourselves, but the people around us. Every single one of us in here has influence on someone else to one degree or another. Do you understand that? Every one of us in here has some level of influence on others. Depending on who you are and what your position is in life, you may have more or less than someone else, but each of us has some influence. And God wants us to use that influence for the good of others and for the glory of God. So do the people that you have influence on, do they need revival? Listen, I'm not talking about having a critical and a judgmental spirit here. I'm talking about just simply having an honest evaluation. Men, let me talk to you specifically. If you're a husband, if you're a father, God has given you a holy responsibility. Lead your wife and lead your family in a godly direction. And part of fulfilling your responsibility is to have an honest assessment of yourself first, but then next of your family. How have you been leading your family? Have you been leading them toward the Lord or away from the Lord? Does your family need revival? In order for you to lead them in that direction, then it's going to take some courage on your part. 
you're going to have to, you're going to, have to fess up, man. Say, so, you know what? We've been doing this, but God has worked in my life and God has convicted me that we, don't, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. We're going to stop. Whatever it is. And that's going to take some courage. You're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to say those awful words. I was wrong. (laughs) It's going to take some courage to lead your family in revival. Can I say it's going to take some courage for all of us to lead our church in revival? As a pastor, I feel this responsibility greatly. But every one of you has a part in it as well. Will we have the courage to step up and and take the steps that are necessary to get right with God? By God's grace, each of us can lead ourselves and others to be right with God and have the joy and the peace that comes from being in fellowship with Him. By having courage, we can see revival. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the Word that You've given to us that encourages us. We thank You for the Holy Spirit that lives in us, who strengthens us. We thank You for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ that shows us exactly how we ought to live. And Lord, if it is true that anyone of us needs revival in our hearts, I pray that revival would start right now with a willingness to confess sin to get our lives right with you. And Lord, I pray that you would do a great work in our church. That more and more we would desire to live righteously and to be a positive influence with the gospel on the lost around us. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.